We come now to our sermon passage this morning, and we're continuing on in the Gospel of John. Um, and we are near the end. We're in the very last chapter, and we've got, I think, three more sermons left in John. And this morning, we're in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. So you open your Bibles or um, turn there on your uh, Bible app or whatever, or it's printed for you in your bulletin as well. Um, so this is John 21, 15 through 17. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have revealed uh, in the words of scripture who you are and what you're about and thus who we are in you. So I pray that as we stop here in these moments to look into the treasures of Scripture, that you would move by your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts, that we may see the glory and beauty and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ and love him all the more. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now I want to start this sermon this morning on a real happy note, very happy note. Um, so I want you to maybe even close your eyes to think about this, but what's the worst thing you've ever done? What's the worst thing you've ever done? Now, I don't mean the time you cussed at somebody who cut you off in traffic or the time you yelled at your spouse or your friend. I don't mean the time you looked at a website you should probably avoid. I mean, I want you to pull into your mind the worst thing that you have ever done, the thing that makes you tremble with shame and guilt when you think about it. Now, I want you to imagine that you give four of your good friends permission to write about it. Four of your really good friends, you give them permission to write about the worst thing that you've ever done. And not just in a private journal. I want you to imagine they are writing it in something that everyone is going to read and reread for generations. In fact, the book that is published and more widely available than any other book in the world. So that for 2,000 years, every time your name comes up, it will be mentioned. Is your heart beating fast? <laughs> Are you feeling a little anxious? Doesn't that sound like your worst nightmare? Well, I bring that up because that's exactly what we have in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John when they write about the denial of Peter. That Peter, in the time of Jesus' arrest and leading right up to his crucifixion, that Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. Peter had followed Jesus for three years that Peter had denied that he even knew him to save his own hide. It's the worst thing Peter ever did. And you can find it. It's one of the things that you can find in all four Gospels. In, it's in Matthew. It's in Mark, which was written with Peter's help by Mark. It's in Luke, and it's in John. The worst thing Peter ever did. Peter, one of the main leaders of the first generation of the Christian church. Peter, the author of books of Scripture. Peter, the first person to preach to a large Jewish audience and the first guy to bring the gospel to a Gentile audience as well, to non-Jewish people. 
So I have a question, and I've asked this before. Why would Peter allow that to happen? If you're starting a new movement, which, you know, he's at the very forefront, one of the first leaders of the Christian church. If you're starting something, wouldn't you, I don't know, edit that out? Wouldn't that be a threat to the church's credibility? After all, we don't trust cowards, right? We don't trust cowards. I think I would have tracked down every copy <laughs> that my friends had written and at least edited it out or, or played it down a little bit. Maybe I'd say I denied Jesus once, but definitely I wouldn't put it in there that I did it three times in like five minutes. Why would Peter allow this to happen? I think Peter felt the freedom to not control his reputation because he had found something better than a good reputation. He had found something better than respectability. He had found the grace of God greater than even his greatest failure. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Because the scene we have in John 21 with Jesus speaking to Peter is, is commonly called the restoration of Peter. This is the first direct conversation that we have between Jesus and Peter after Peter had denied Jesus. Here Jesus is resurrected, victorious over the grave. And this is their first conversation. So we're going to uh, break it up into a couple different sections. The first one's this. Grace goes first. Grace goes first. So our passage is just after Jesus has come to his disciples in their ordinary lives. That's what we spoke about last week. Jesus appeared to his disciples, not just in the heady place of Jerusalem, the capital city, just after a festival. Here Jesus arrives to, to show himself to his disciples and to speak to them in their very ordinary Galilean life, right there on the sea where they had been fishermen their whole lives. Jesus, uh, right before this, had fed them breakfast, literally made breakfast for them. And now Jesus turns to Peter specifically. Now you may remember in our passage a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Jesus coming to Thomas. Thomas who had doubted the report that Jesus had been uh, raised from the dead. And that Jesus comes to Thomas not to shame him for not believing when he first heard it, but to reveal himself to Thomas. He comes to Thomas with a grace fitted for Thomas's need, a grace specific to Thomas. And right here we see the same thing happen when Jesus comes to Peter. We have the same thing with Peter. Now I want to point out a couple of things. If you've read, or if you remember, when Peter denies Jesus three times, he had what? Used his words to publicly deny that he even knew Jesus. And so when Jesus turns to Peter here specifically, what does he invite him to do in these questions? He is inviting Peter to use his words that had denied Jesus to affirm his love for Jesus. It's almost there's a symmetry to it. That, that uh, the, the words of Peter had been used to deny Jesus. Well, here Jesus gives the opportunity for Peter to use those same lips, to use his words to affirm the love for Jesus. But before the issue of Peter's denial is dealt with, before Jesus even asks these questions, Jesus feeds him. That's what happened immediately before this passage. Peter's failure was real. He needed to be restored. It needed to be dealt with, and it would be, so that his story would not end in the shadow of failure. But before Jesus addresses that at all, 
He feeds Peter. And it shows us that grace goes first. God's grace goes first. Jesus was not waiting for Peter to show up with probably a rehearsed speech of I'm sorry. You may have noticed when we looked at our call to worship in Luke 15, the prodigal son, he had a rehearsed speech. He says it twice in that short passage. Rehearsed speech. I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to say this thing and he'll show me grace. And then when he gets to his father, his father stands before him. After he's hugged his neck, he says the speech and his father doesn't even respond to his rehearsed I'm sorry. The father immediately turns and says, it's party, party time. Get the best clothes out. Get the rings, put it on his fingers. Kill the fatted calf. We're having a celebration because my son was dead and now he's home. Grace went first there. Well, right here, Jesus is not waiting for Peter to, to do some rehearsed I'm sorry speech or even a heartfelt real I'm sorry speech. Now, Peter was sorry, but Jesus was teaching Peter here that his confidence did not rest in how sorry he felt or how perfect his repentance may seem, as if repentance was a work that Peter needed to do to earn God's grace. No, grace goes first. Peter's welcome was rooted in Jesus, not Peter. Grace goes first. Now, sometimes I think we can say the word repentance, and we think of it as something we do. Something we do. It's something, it's something primarily rooted in us. Like we find the motivation inside ourselves to turn over a new leaf. Or a, 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 a saying that I've heard a, a million times in my life, uh, he, he died for me. Jesus died for me. What have I done for him? Almost like there's a reciprocal thing, as if something we could do would match up to the grandeur of his work for us. So we can speak about repentance as something we do. Like we're going to turn over a new leaf. We're finally smart enough to get it right and go on the, wrong, uh, go on the right path. And then God gives us grace. Uh, you know, what's the famous uh, saying that so many people think is actually a verse of Scripture? Uh, God helps those who help themselves. That's not Scripture. Um, I think it's Ben Franklin, actually. Um, God helps those who help themselves. That's what we can think about. But that gets everything backwards. That gets absolutely everything backwards. Repentance, even the most heartfelt repentance, feeling sorrow for sin, is not what gets God to love us. True repentance is turning from sin and at the same time turning to Jesus. It's not just turning around from the wrong thing. It's like our hearts have been captured by a vision of the beauty and majesty and glory of Jesus. And it causes our hearts to be ripped off of these idols that cannot satisfy us. To be turned from the sin and the guilt and the failure that we carry around and to be placed on him. Because he is glorious and he is beautiful. His beauty outshines the ugliness of our sin. And our hearts are pulled away. And that's what repentance is. Repentance and faith. It's stopping trusting in our own power or anything else. And it is turning to trust in Jesus. It's almost like, think of it as a two-step process. And this is really the whole of the Christian life. Repentance, faith, repentance, faith. They're two sides of the same coin. They're two steps in one uh, walking process. We turn from, we turn to, and they're never done, uh, you know, separately. Repentance and faith. To say it another way, true repentance isn't just feeling bad for wrong things we've done. It involves that. It does. 
but it is discovering the mercy of God in Jesus. Repentance will mean sorrow over sin, but it will mean sorrow that does not leave us in shame. It will mean sorrow that leads us to life. The Apostle Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 7. He had written to the Corinthian church who were really abusing each other in some terrible ways, disregarding God and disregarding each other. And he had written to them in 1 Corinthians, and they had responded to his letter with sorrow and repentance. He actually calls their response godly sorrow. And he compares it, uh, contrasts it, I should say, with what he calls worldly sorrow. He says, worldly sorrow leads to death. It's sorrow that stays in shame. It is sorrow that stays in sorrow. But he says, godly sorrow leads to repentance. So turning from, turning to. Godly sorrow leads to repentance and leaves no regret. It steps through shame. It steps through guilt. That is godly sorrow. So we may feel sorrow, and that is part of repentance, but that's not the gist of it. That's not the main part. So if you think, I've done something wrong, I need to repent, and you define that as like, I feel really, really bad. You, you, you're missing uh, the key part, the key thing that actually makes it true repentance, the grace of Jesus, the shining light of Jesus that leads us to him. If you really mess up, you don't need to figure out some uh, time frame. Like, I got to feel real bad for two weeks. This was a bad one. This is a real bad one. I got to feel really bad for two weeks. And then, okay, I can start to forgive. I start to feel better. No. We turn, and there may be sorrow, of course, because sin is the worst thing in the world. But we find mercy and grace right away. I think Peter discovers that in this passage. Peter has had his massive failure, and Peter learns when Jesus comes to him and feeds him before Peter can say a word that grace goes first. Grace meets us before we can even say a bit of I'm sorry. And it is only God's grace that can truly lead us to repentance. And for the rest of Peter's life, he could look back on this morning and remember before he could say a word of I'm sorry, Jesus welcomed him and fed him. That's what we see, as I said, in the prodigal son. He finds a welcome that is not uh, built on his own works. It's not built on anything other than his father's uh, <laughs> profound love and joy that his son has come home. Grace goes first. And that brings us to our second section. Grace goes first, but grace also overcomes our failure. Grace overcomes our failure. The welcome of Jesus does not mean that he simply overlooks Peter's failure. Because Peter's sin was no laughing matter, and it's not something that could be ignored. Neither is ours. Sin is the worst thing in the world. It's the marring of God's good creation. It is rebellion against him. Scripture speaks of it as spiritual darkness. It speaks of it as a slave master that holds us bound. Sin is the worst thing in the world, and it carries consequences. As Scripture says in the book of Romans, the wages for sin is death. The paycheck that, that sin earns is death. 
Why? Because it cuts off from the God who is our life. The wages of sin is death. Sin is at its heart injustice and wrong that must be addressed and must be made right. So Jesus knows Peter's failure. Jesus knows Peter's failure. He knows that Peter had denied him not just once or twice, but three times. And now Peter is in front of Jesus, but Jesus does not lecture him into silence. He actually invites Peter to open his mouth again by asking Peter this question three times. As I said, it's an invitation for Peter to use his words to confess love for Jesus. The grace of Jesus meets Peter's failure head on, not only to match it, I said there was some symmetry, but it's really asymmetrical because the grace of Jesus overcomes Peter's failure. Grace goes first, and it overcomes our failure. It overcomes our sin. It's important for us to know that just as God's grace did not find Peter because he was really sorry, it did not find him because he was able to say the right words or do the right actions. It wasn't like the love of Jesus for Peter was waiting for Peter to say that he loved Jesus. No, God's grace met Peter's failure before Peter could open his mouth to say sorry or open his mouth to answer Jesus' question. It had already happened in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus for Peter. To say it another way, Jesus had done something in his cross and in his resurrection objective. He had done an objective work apart from Peter. And then he had turned to Peter to make it a subjective reality in his life. What Jesus accomplished for Peter wasn't in any way dependent on Peter. The victory that Jesus accomplished, Peter had no part in except for the sin that made it necessary. <laughs> what Jesus accomplished for Peter was not in any way dependent on Peter. What Jesus has accomplished for us is in not in any way dependent on us. Jesus lived. Jesus faced crucifixion. He rose from the dead without any help or input from Peter. And all that Jesus earned and accomplished becomes Peter's by grace. Jesus lived a righteous life. Peter did not. Yet, the righteousness of Jesus is credited to Peter. And Peter is righteous in God's sight because he's now joined to Jesus by grace. Jesus faced the penalty for sin. Remember, the wages for sin are what? Death. He satisfied the justice due against sin. And so now, for Peter, there is no more justice to be satisfied. There is no more condemnation to be passed on even the most heinous of his sins because it has been taken care of in Jesus by grace. Jesus was raised from the dead. He was vindicated by God as God's righteous one who overcame the power of death. And so the finality and the ultimacy of death is now defeated for Peter by grace. Friends, you have failed in life. You have failed big. I have too. There's no question about it. You have sinned. And you've done some really terrible things. You've thought some terrible things. You've said some terrible things. What can you do about it? What can you do about it? You can try to start something new and try to begin again, but what about when your strength runs out? What about when the temptations get too strong? What, what happens when your good intentions end? 
when you mess up again? Well, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has accomplished something outside of us, not dependent on us, but for us. And all that is needed for us to be made right with God and be made new has been accomplished by him and becomes ours as a gift. And Jesus doesn't have just good advice about how to be good people. Let's not treat him that way. It's not just good advice about here's the right things to do and hopefully it works out for you. No, Jesus has good news for us, the announcement of a victory accomplished. Good news of a grace that goes first and overcomes our failure. And so for Peter, God's grace meets him in his failure because of what Jesus had done. And Peter could be enabled to speak these words of love here, not just failure because of what Jesus had done. For you and me, grace goes first. Grace goes first. Grace meets you in your failure. And Jesus calls you to see the magnificence of his love for you, to see the ugliness of sin that has worn you out and turn to him and find life. He makes it possible for our words to be used for something more than denial, sin, and betrayal. For he, he makes it possible for our words to matter and to be used for love, which brings me to my last section. Grace gives birth to love. Grace goes first. Grace overcomes our failure. And grace gives birth to love. Peter had denied Jesus because of fear. And it had shattered his heart. In fact, if you look at the Gospel of Luke, the way he writes about Peter's denial of Jesus. After Peter had denied Jesus the third time, it says Peter went out and found a place uh, to himself and wept bitterly. It had torn his heart to pieces, the realization of what he had done. He had wept bitterly. Fear had given birth to sin, and sin leads to guilt and shame and death. Sin, in a sense, is the most unnatural thing in the world. It's the disintegration of all that is good and all that should be. Yet here, Peter is restored by the grace of Jesus. Grace goes first, it overcomes his failure, and grace gives birth to something. It creates a different trajectory. In the same way that sin leads to death, grace leads to life. Grace gives birth to love. Love for Jesus that shows itself in love and service of others. Notice Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter answers each time, you know that I love you. And then Jesus will respond with what? Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. Jesus is making it clear to Peter, as Peter is being restored by grace, that love for Jesus is not just an emotion or a feeling, and it's not just words. That love for Jesus is a way of life that shows itself in a definite way, care and concern for others. What will it look like for Peter, now res restored, to love Jesus? Not just words, though those obviously are important. Love for Jesus will show itself in Peter's service of other people. And how Peter, as someone called by Jesus, as his ambassador in the world, will care for people under his, uh, under his care. Now Jesus had shown himself as the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep, who goes to the furthest extent for their good, and now he is inviting Peter, imperfect but redeemed by the grace of God, to join him in shepherding the church. 
And so it's remarkable. Actually, if you turn later on in, in 1 Peter, Peter speaks of himself as an under-shepherd or a fellow shepherd of other pastors to God's flock. He had been restored to this work. And we see this in all that comes next. If you turn your Bible, literally uh, one page, literally one page in most of your Bibles, you're going to be in Acts chapter 2, and you'll find this very same Peter who is being told, to love me is to care for my sheep. You find this exact same Peter preaching a few weeks later, and his words, his announcement that Jesus is alive and it changes everything, and forgiveness of sins is possible, his words lead to 3,000 people coming to faith in a day. Just a couple of weeks after this. And if you keep reading, you'll see Peter continue to feed God's sheep and lead them through unbelievable changes in the first decades of the church's life. He plants churches. He writes books of Scripture. And in fact, Peter himself eventually winds up being killed, executed by the Roman government in the mid-60s. And we'll talk about that a little more next week. Now, if I was Peter, to come back to what we talked about at the beginning, if I was Peter, I'd be so glad for you to know all those things. I would love for you to know I planted this church, I planted that church. Um, I was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these two books of Scripture. I'd be stoked for you to know that. That's going on the resume right now that I'm handing out, right? That's the stuff I'd want everyone writing about and talking about. But like I said at the beginning of the sermon, all four Gospels talk about Peter's denial of Jesus. I'd leave that out, I think. There's more I'd probably leave out as well, because if you keep reading, you'll notice that after what happens here in John 21, Peter does not live a sinless life. Not at all. We actually see Peter specifically struggling with prejudice. We see it in the book of Acts. We see Paul talking about it in the book of Galatians. Peter struggle with prejudice as the gospel begins to spread to people who are very different from him. People that he had been taught to avoid and dislike. We see a Peter after this who still sins and sins in big ways. Still has blind spots. So why would Peter allow all of that not to, to be included? Like maybe I'd allow my denial of Jesus to be included, but, but no sins after I'm restored here and told to feed the sheep, right? I think Peter wanted everybody to know, before you get impressed with my service for the church, before you get impressed for my care for others, know that every bit of it was grace. All of it. All of it was grace. Nothing but grace all the way through. Grace that went first. Grace that found me in my failure to forgive me and lift me out. Grace that gave birth to love where fear and sin had reigned before and did that over and over again. Our encouragement and our challenge from this passage is, is this, to not only, number one, never forget that it's all grace, that that is what we are carried along by, that, it, that is the very bedrock of who we are, that is the fountain that we drink from, the nourishment for our soul is the grace of God in Jesus Christ, period. But number two, to see that the grace of God is propelling us to a different way of life. Now, you may have big, fail, big failure, and I don't mean distant past failure. You may have very present failure. But Jesus is leading you to not remain in shame or guilt. He is not leading you to stay in sorrow. 
No, His grace has gone first and is not waiting for you to take the first step. His grace has overcome your failure and is not waiting for you to make things right. We simply uh, rest on what Jesus has done. We trust and depend on Him, not ourselves. That's faith. And His grace is making you new. It's giving birth to love. I'd like to end this sermon with words from one of my favorite authors, this guy named James K.A. Smith, about this very idea. He writes this, Shame teaches me to look at my past and see something hideous that makes me regret my existence. I'm going to read that again. Shame teaches me to look at my past and see something hideous that makes me regret my existence. But in grace, God looks at my past And he sees the sketch of a work of art that he wants to finish painting and show the world. In the hands of such an artist, all of my weaknesses are openings for strength. The proverbial cracks that let the light in. Even my sins and struggles hold the possibility for compassion and sympathy. Only such a God could make even my vices the soil in which he could grow virtue. Sometimes only a history of pride and arrogance can yield a profound humility that shows the world something about God. Sometimes being left gives rise to the fiercest commitment to stay. Maybe you grew up in a family where everyone broke their promises, and yet by the grace of God that has turned into a tenacious resolve to keep your vows. Maybe it's your painful experience of exclusion that makes you such a passionate advocate for inclusion and welcome. Shame wants me to regret this, but grace wants me to see it as a possibility. Grace wants to unleash our history for a future with God that could only be ours, living into the version of ourselves that the world needs. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in the gospel we discover a treasure Grace that is not waiting for us to take the first step, but grace that goes first. Grace that overcomes our failure. Not by just uh, uh, redeeming us from the penalty of sin, but redeeming us from its power to set us free. Grace that overcomes our failure. And we thank you that you are working within us in this grace to give birth to love, to set us on a different trajectory in life, to live in service of you and service of others. So I pray, Lord, as we reflect on these truths, that you would work within us to make them not just words that we hear, but things that are embedded deeply within us by your Holy Spirit. Teach us by faith to lean upon Jesus and Jesus alone for life and salvation. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.